Good morning. Such a beautiful time of singing this morning and prayer and scripture. And uh, I appreciate all of you who have led us and all of you who have joined in with your heart this morning. Uh, let me just invite the Lord into this, this sermon right now. Lord God, thank you for this privilege we have, the way you've blessed us to be in your presence together this morning. Unite our hearts now to fear your name and to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're beginning a series on leadership. If you haven't seen the signs and the emails, now you know. Uh, we're starting for the next four weeks talking about leadership. You may be wondering why we have this, these talks on leadership. Well, don't you want to know what's going on around here? Don't you want to know how things are happening? Uh, I think most people do, so uh, that's, that's one good reason for it. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, I think it stabilizes the church, it strengthens the church to know some things about uh, leadership and uh, to know what's uh, going on in terms of uh, the principles and the scriptures and how that's getting worked out here in this church. So would somebody mind giving me more than five and a half minutes up there on my timer? Because uh, <laughs> I'm not planning to cut it off there. Thank you. Um, uh, get me dependent on that thing, then you got to get it up there, right? Um, so, what I want you to know about leadership, before we say anything else, this is a foundational idea you'll see repeated throughout the next four weeks. That is character is the most important part of leadership. Character is more fundamental than gifting, even, although gifting is important. And particularly, the character of humility is central to leadership. So let me ask you something here. You know, we're talking about leadership in general, but, but there are two ways to think about this. In one sense, everybody has some degree of leadership, right? whether it's in the home or in the workplace or whatever. So that uh, applies to you just in, in a sense of you will have some leadership in some ways. In another sense, everybody needs to think about humility anyway. So all of this that we're talking about, while we're, while we're doing it in a, in a series on leadership, it will be applicable to all of us. So let me just start by asking this question. Would you raise your hand if you struggle with pride? of you. Now, I want to tell you something. C.S. Lewis says, if you think you're not prideful, that means you're very prideful indeed. <laughs> so that was a trap. <laughs> I set you up there. If you did, I don't know who didn't raise their hands, but uh, if you didn't raise your hand, maybe you should think about that. Pride is a universal struggle. Now, I imagine there are some in here you've made a lot of progress with it. Thank God for that. Others may be just starting on the journey. But it is a universal struggle. And in the Christian tradition, it is viewed as one of, if not the central sin. The sin on which other sins grow. In fact, it is the only sin, or one of the only ones at least, maybe the only sin, uh, that grows on virtue just as much as it does on vice. You understand? That, that pride can grow when you're doing really well. Because in that accomplishment in that uh, moment where you start to feel good about yourself that's when you say uh, I think I may be better than others around me <laughs> and pride is growing on virtue just like it can uh, grow up on vice so it's a very very serious issue 
And today we're talking about uh, learning to have the heart. Is there a lot of reverb going on here? Because it is in my, in my ears. Can we tone that down a little bit? Thank you. Uh, today we talk about learning to have the heart of a servant. Jesus taught us this kind of thing. Uh, when I, in just a moment we're going to sing the song, Lord, Make Me a Servant. And uh, we sang that song years ago. I was either dating Olivia uh, early in marriage. I can't remember for sure. We sang that song at the end of a, a church service, and I turned to her right afterwards, and I said, when I sang that song, I was saying, Lord, give me a servant. <laughs> I don't know if that was a very wise thing to say at that point in our relationship, but it was just a joke. But isn't it true that most of us would rather have servants than be servants? And I want to say something to you up front. As long as we persist in that mentality, we have not learned the way of Christ. We, we want to be emphatic here, okay? And you're going to see this in the scriptures over the next couple of weeks. If we're not learning to be servants, if we're not learning the way of humility, then we are not growing spiritually. We're not growing in Christ. Because this is essential. And so I want to tell you, it is essential to discipleship that we learn the way of service. We learn the way of humility. So I'm happy that we get to talk about this for a few weeks. And I just want to say at the outset that I feel like I am uniquely qualified to teach you people about humility. And uh, I don't know who would teach you if I weren't here to teach you about humility. <laughs> now, you see the problem here? Pride is uh, uh, something that uh, you can make yourself more prideful just by talking to other people about it. You can become pr proud in your knowledge about pride. You can become proud as a teacher about pride, and I can do that uh, very easily, and I, I don't want to do that. I want to be uh, aware of myself here, and you can just hear what I say to you as an acknowledgement of my own weakness, my own need to grow. I hope you'll hear it that way. I am seeking these things. I have not arrived uh, I've been seeking them for a long time, and I'm continuing to seek. And uh, just last night, um, as I got into an argument with my wife, um, and I became proud and defensive, um, I thought to myself, how am I qualified now to get up and tell the church about pride? And um, I thought, well, the least I can do is uh, confess that and... Uh, God can do then with me what he wants to and with you what he wants to. But you just know I'm a fellow seeker on the journey towards humility with you. So we're going to dive in to the scripture here, this beautiful scripture that, that Steve uh, shared with us today, John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, here is the night of uh, his betrayal, the night when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now I just want to stop there and say something to you. Don't overlook this passage and let it become so familiar that you miss out on the fact that Jesus has done something revolutionary. And it's about love. And we're so worn out with love around us today, it's become an indefinable quality, it's become a slogan, it's become vague, it's become romantic, 
and we've lost sight of what love really is. Jesus redefined love. I'll say this today since uh, I'm thinking about Silas here this morning with Patrick Mahomes playing today. Patrick Mahomes, quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, he redefined the quarterback position in my mind. He came on the scene and he did things that nobody's ever done before. They didn't know they could throw it sidearm, right? They didn't know you can make no-look passes, all kinds of things he's doing that, that nobody's ever done. And I guarantee you there are going to be other people now you're going to see rise up over the years, really talented people who try these kind of things because nobody ever thought of them before this guy got out there and did it. Or at least they hadn't had the ability to do it if they'd thought of it, right? He's redefined that, that position. Well, I mean, I hate to even compare it because it's so meaningless by comparison with what Jesus did in talking about a moral quality like love. But it helps to make the point. Jesus redefined love. In a sense, nobody ever thought of love like Jesus did. Nobody ever seen it on the map like Jesus put it on the map. And when we talk about service, when we talk about becoming servants and being people of humility, we're talking about love. In fact, there are two sides of the same coin. Because love is essentially other regarding. You know what I mean? To love somebody, I have to be attentive to you. I have to think about you and your needs and your desires, right? Humility is essentially self-forgetting. That's what humility is. It, it, is a, it is an ability to not think about yourself. <laughs> so if you're going to love somebody and be attentive to them, you're going to have to not think about yourself all the time. And that's why love and humility are forever joined. They are two sides of the same coin. And when we're talking about having humility like Jesus had it, we're talking about learning to love people like Jesus loved. This is why humility is at the heart of Christian ethics. When we say love your neighbor as yourself as the second commandment, we're talking about learning humility as well because they go together. And this is what we'll see. Jesus made this central to everything we're supposed to know. And may I suggest to you this morning that we have not gotten done yet with learning to love. And there is room in our hearts and in our lives for more love. And probably if we're learning love like Jesus loved, sometimes it's going to seem unnatural to people. It's going to be well thought out intentional actions that might, might seem weird. It may be something that the people around us just have not thought of because we are learning a different way of life from Jesus. I love the way that this guy, reflecting on Jesus' life, John, reflecting on his life, saying, I know all about him. He had loved his disciples, but he didn't stop loving them. He came right up to the end, and he loved them to the end. That's what we see in this passage. And I want to say to you uh, that growing old may mean growing weak in our bodies, but growing old does not mean growing weak in love. Nearing the end of our lives may mean uh, drawing certain parts of our lives to an end, but it shouldn't mean drawing love to an end. It should mean coming to a fuller expression of love, and that means a fuller expression of beauty and depth and meaning in our lives. This is why we don't, and I know I preached about this uh, uh, a month or two ago, but uh, about growing old, but we don't accept society's narrative about aging that says basically you're supposed to be put on the shelf, that, that youth is the gloried position in life, and then you get old and you're put on the shelf. No, you get old, you're learning to love better. And you can love to the end. 
That's what I want to be true of myself. I want the people who know me to know I love them and I kept loving them all the way to the end. That's what we're talking about when we talk about humility today. Hold on, I don't know if I read the second verse. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's interesting because Judas Iscariot's there for this experience. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And we'll read the rest of that in just a minute, but I want to pause right here and say this is a striking passage to me. Before Jesus does something radically humble, takes a radical posture of humility, the scripture says he came from God. He knew, not just that he came around, he knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. And I want to say to you this, the first key that I know of to humility, please hear me on this, it's so important. It may sound like a, a trite Christian phrase, but it's so important. The first key, and I believe the most important key to humility, is knowing God. And there's a sense in which we can affirm what Jesus did. We have come from God in a sense. And we're going back to God as the people of Jesus. This is the key to, to the Christian life in general. It, it's not, you see... The scripture does not say Jesus, knowing how much he had accomplished, knowing how many friends he had, <laughs> then he was able to serve because he was so uh, confident in himself. It was that he knew God, and that defined everything for him. Years ago, I was talking to the lady I've told you about before, Miss Ruby, a bright and shining light in her 80s in my life. And I asked her, at one point we were studying anger at church, Dealing with anger, and I asked her, I said, Miss Ruby, what, what do you think the key is to dealing with anger? And uh, she said, you know, no pause at all. Said, you know, I would think that the key to that is being close to God. And, uh, and uh, she said then, of course, you know, that's not my struggle. I have a lot of other struggles, but that's just not my struggle. Um, and uh, this, this amazing woman just spoke truth so simple. But she knew that the key to dealing with anger was her walk with God. And it's why it wasn't a problem for her. The same thing is true, and a lot of anger actually is based in pride, by the way. So, so they are related. But the same thing is true in our, in our dealing with pride. It comes from knowing God, knowing his love for us, knowing our value to him. I will spend a little bit more time on this because, I say, as I'm saying, it's the key, and then we'll... We will uh, move on and cover the rest of this passage more quickly. But this is a central key to moving out of ourselves and out of our pride. Most people, when they think about themselves, if they are people of status and, and uh, they know that, then they demand to be treated in line with that status, right? You ever heard anybody say, do you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Because they're expecting treatment in line with their high status. Jesus did the exact opposite. He was the king of the universe. <laughs> and he knew who he was. But he didn't need it to be recognized by everybody else precisely because he knew who he was in relation to God. This is the key. I want you to see what Andrew Murray says about this. Andrew Murray has a wonderful book on humility. I urge you to read it. I read it every year 
and I'm going to keep reading it until I get closer <laughs> to where he is. Um, it's uh, incredible words. And, and listen to how he says this. It is only in the possession of God that I lose myself. Just stop with that first line before we go further. It is only in the possession of God that I lose myself. We are trying other solutions. as We're trying uh, solutions that are destined to fail as long as we are trying other solutions outside God. It is only in the possession of God that I lose myself. As it is in the height and breadth and glory of the sunshine. I love this line. That the littleness of the dust particle playing in its beams is seen. See, we're the little dust particles. But we can glisten in the bright sunlight of God. Even so, humility is the taking of our place in God's presence to be nothing but a moat dwelling in the sunlight of his love. May God teach us to believe that to be humble, to be nothing in his presence, is the highest attainment and the fullest blessing of the Christian life. We're going to talk more about that next week on the blessing of humility. But just, just stay with this idea that Murray's putting out there before us. It's only in knowing God that we can actually learn to live in humility. And this is just something we have to drink deeply in and to know that we failed to communicate to people the great love that God has for them. And outside of that, we end up seeking to sustain our fragile selves in all kinds of other ways. Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I successful enough? Do I have enough money? Do I have a big enough house? Do people like me enough? Oh, no, we try to, to, to ground our fragile selves in things besides God. And then we're essentially competitive. We're always looking around us and saying, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. I may not be much, but at least I'm better than my neighbor. In this competitive world, I want you to know Jesus invites you to step out of it and into his blessedness. And it is a relief to step out of that. We're in a society where self-esteem is a big deal. And I'm not saying it shouldn't matter. Howard and I had a good discussion about this last week. See, the conventional wisdom today is that uh, pride is not really bad. And it's not really what our problem is. Our problem is that we lack self-esteem. And this is what you'll hear all around you. And you see how this might pose some problems for the Christian tradition. Because <laughs> the Christian tradition says pride is at the heart of our problem. And it's what's at the heart of wars and societal ills and family problems and all kinds of things. And you see where it might go if you start esteeming yourself... <laughs> I'm not talking about a baseline self-esteem, okay? Well, everybody needs that. But if you start trying to esteem yourself more than you're trying to live in humility, this can pose major problems for your development as a Christian. And now this has just gone off the rails in our society where, where people talk about in the need to make everything equal so, people, so kids will feel good about themselves. People talk about canceling Little League Baseball because kids are striking out. I mean, this is true. I don't know how, how much I've read about this. Uh, this, this, this radical equalization that people are trying to do to make everybody feel okay. And I think it's, it's connected to a whole structure of beliefs that have gone wrong. 
structure of beliefs where we've forgotten God in our society. And so we've elevated human beings, and we've lost the idea of sin and grace. That is supposed, if there's any equalization, that's it. You see, here, here's where we're all equal. We're not all going to be equal in terms of our abilities. We might as well stop trying to make it seem that way. I struck out a lot in baseball. That's why I quit playing Little League Baseball. We're not all equal. We're all equal in being loved by God. And we're all equal in being broken by sin. And so we stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And we find our value right there in the bright sunlight of God's love shining on us. And then we say, I don't have to pretend like I'm as good a baseball player as you. <laughs> or whatever else it is. Because I have this value that I find in God. And just like you're broken by sin, I'm broken by sin. We're all dealing with the same problem. And in that relationship then with God that we establish, and his great love and kindness to us, out of that character grows. And in that character, we can esteem ourselves. Not highly, more highly than we ought to. But in this relationship with God, where we have a fundamental character in place, we can, we can have a self-esteem. It's not pretense. And that will start moving us to be productive members of our world. And we'll start to feel better about ourselves. But you see, it, it, it's connected to having God at the center of all this. This is what we see in this passage. Jesus, let me see here, there we go. He'd come from God and was going back to God. So he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, if you haven't heard this already, uh, this is a pretty famous Christian teaching, but... Uh, this was a radical, radical behavior. It was an extremely status-conscious society back in those days. I know we have some of that today, but it was different back then. It was built into the legal system of the day. Like, uh, at least in the Greco-Roman world, lower classes could not bring lawsuits against the upper classes. Not just as a miscarriage of justice, but it was just built into the system. People understood it. You had clothing that distinguished, I'm a freedman, I'm a senator, I, I'm above you in this way. There were seating arrangements at, at, the, at the meals you would participate in. And if you were of a certain class, you sat above the others. Certain people stood up when you came into the room, etc. It was built into the world to always be guarding your status. And this is precisely why nobody had washed anybody's feet in the room with Jesus. <laughs> Normally that happened right at the first. And it would be done by a slave Sometimes, at least. Certainly not by someone of status, someone important. And so none of the disciples were willing to do it. In fact, Jewish slaves, this was such a menial task, menial task, that, that Jewish slaves, I mean Jewish masters would not have their Jewish slaves wash people's feet. They would make their Gentile slaves do it. Because it was disrespecting to their Jewish slaves, they wouldn't do it. And people, I mean, today still in the Arab world, feet are considered uh, dishonorable or nasty or whatever. Y'all you remember, remember when uh, uh, the guy several years back took his shoe, the Iraqi reporter, and threw it at George Bush? 
yeah, all right. And Bush had awesome refluxes. He ducked. You missed it? All right. Yeah. Um, um, that, was, uh, that was because, it wasn't just because the guy was mad and thought he was going to knock Bush out. It was, a, it was a dishonorable thing to hit him with the shoe. Because right? his feet were considered nasty like that. Nobody wanted to do this job. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not that nobody had ever thought of humility before. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see they knew humility was a good idea. It came from God already. <laughs> and so there were efforts to be humble in the world. And there were ways people tried to be humble. But nobody had thought of doing something like this, where the king would bow down and do the job of a slave. That's what Jesus did. And he was doing it to redefine the world for us. This is on the night in which he is betrayed. He's about to die. He's been trying to get this message across to his disciples for a while, but now he does something dramatic to forever etch it in their minds, to etch it in the church's mind, that this will be a different world in which you live. My people will not be like the people you have seen elsewhere. So he began acting like a slave. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Whoa. Now that seems like a big statement. Scholars uh, uh, speculate that what this means is it's kind of a symbol. And that Jesus is saying that uh, you've got to accept my service for you if you're going to have a part with me. And it symbolizes then, at the beginning here of his passion, it's going to follow all the way through, uh, through chapter 19 here, uh, in, in John, that he's saying, you have to accept my death, too. You have to let me serve you. And that may be true. Uh, and I'm not sure it's an either or here, or here but I have, a, uh, I have another suggestion, another speculation about what might be going on here in this passage that may, may accompany that view. And that is simply that Jesus' way is a way of reversal. And you have to accept that reversal to have a part of him. You have to accept the reversal of status and pride for humility and service if you really want in on what Jesus is doing. You see, what I'm suspicious of, you know, the, the text is just elusive. It doesn't give us enough information. But what I'm suspicious of is that Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet, not just because he's being nice to Jesus, but because Peter recognizes this upsets the whole world if he accepts it. He knows that if Jesus washes his feet, what does that mean he should do for other people? There's no longer the same relationship between the higher-ups and the lower-downs. There's no longer the same relationship between masters and slaves, between the, the free people and the not free people, between the Jews and the Gentiles. See, this upsets the entire society. This is a whole new world. This is new creation. And in fact, that phrase comes from the Apostle Paul. It's in Christ, new creation. That's what he says, 2 Corinthians 5. Go read it. 
You'll find out there that Paul is talking about the same thing Jesus is talking about here. It's humility. It's a world in which status distinctions no longer characterize us as foundational. They no longer cause us to treat people differently. Peter could not say, I won't have anything to do with what you're doing, Jesus. Because what you're doing is changing everything. Jesus says, if you want in on what I'm doing, I have to wash you. I have to wash your feet. Jesus is showing them with this behavior that this is the essence of life in his kingdom. It's humility and it's service. When you think about this, I've already said it, I'm going to repeat myself. Jesus is going to be betrayed in a few hours. He is going to his death. He is taking this time to institute the Lord's Supper, which will forever mark his people going forward. But he also takes the time to wash his disciples' feet. And I wish somebody had told me when I was a kid that it was just just as important on the night of Jesus' betrayal, it was just as important that he washed his disciples' feet as it was that he instituted the Lord's Supper. (laughs) I grew up in a tradition where we'd get real upset if you messed up the Lord's Supper. But nobody told me how important it was that I learned to wash feet. Jesus didn't say, well, if you mess up the Lord's Supper, you don't have any part in me. But you see, if we miss out on what he's doing in reversing relationships here, we are missing out on life in the kingdom. Let me share with you one more word from Andrew Murray, and we'll we'll, uh, quickly come to the end here. It is not until Christians study the humility of Jesus as the very essence of his redemption, as the very blessedness of the life of the Son of God, as the only true relation to the Father, and therefore is that which Jesus must give us. See that? That which Jesus must give us if we are to have any part with him. That the terrible lack of actual heavenly manifest humility will become a burden and a sorrow and our ordinary religion be set aside to secure this, the first and chief of the marks of Christ within us. You hear what Murray's saying? saying we have to look at Jesus and see that the essence of his salvation that he's bringing involves us learning the way of humility. And, and, and when we, we learn that he has to give it to us as a gift, and we see it as the essence, the blessedness of redemption, then it will become a burden to us that it's so absent because we've gotten used to a church. Broadly speaking, the church has gotten used to it not being present in that just being okay. And we have to look at Jesus and say, we're sorry. We're sorry we didn't get the lesson you gave us before you died. And we want to set aside all the religious stuff we've been doing and learn this. That's the way of transformation. I love what Peter does then when Jesus says, I have to have, you have to have this to have a part of me. He says, Lord, then I'm all in. <laughs> because whatever his faults were, Peter knew Jesus had it. 
and he knew he was going with Jesus. In fact, that was the difference in Peter and Judas. They might both be resisting the change, but Judas knew what he wanted, and Jesus didn't seem to be bringing it. Peter knew that what he wanted above all else was Jesus. So he didn't have to have humility perfectly figured out. He didn't have to have it so deeply inside his heart to say, Lord, just take me. And if this is what it is, then wash every part of me. Not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. But let me just stop there. So that encourages me. These disciples had so far to go in humility. But he says you're clean. Because they're with him. And you may be at a place right now where it seems like a long journey's ahead of you. Probably that's true for a lot of us. But if you're with Jesus, and you're stepping in with him saying, Lord, yes, then he says you're clean. Not all of you, though, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And that was Judas. And I can't help but wonder if the fundamental problem with Judas was that he was not willing to take on the way of servitude that Jesus brought. He wanted the glory. He wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, and he wanted to be in the group that was with the king when the king overthrew the Romans. And it wasn't happening, and he was starting to figure that out, and he couldn't take it, and he wasn't clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? And I want to stop and ask you this morning, do you understand what Jesus has done for you? The truth is that much of the church still does not understand what Jesus has done. And that's why there's so much petty fighting. Many times disguised as doctrinal conviction. That's why there's so much division. That's why there's so much one-upmanship, people trying to get the attention on themselves. That's why there's so much people wrestling for authority, getting upset about little things. It's because we don't understand what Jesus did for us. He showed us a different way. And it's the way of blessedness and joy. But it's radically different. And we have to come to him and say, Lord, we want this. And we depend on you to give it to us. Do you understand that the church cannot look like other organizations in our world? Leadership cannot look like leadership does in the various organizations that characterize our world. You see, the church was starting to get this, the early church. There's this early church order. I, I said this once before. It may have been on one of the online sermons, but uh, uh, the Didascalia Apostolorum. <laughs> I don't know if I said that right. It was an early church order. And uh, they had this rule. They said if somebody comes in late, if a wealthy person comes in late to your services, you just keep right on preaching. You keep right on singing. But if a poor person comes in late to your services, you stop the service. And if necessary, if there's not a seat for him, you let him have the bishop's seat. And the bishop sits on the floor. Do you know what that is? 
That's a totally new world. That's new creation. That's a world that didn't exist until Jesus said, I'm going to love my disciples to the very end. And so there's a new way to be. The early church was getting it. Are we getting it? When people attend churches, a lot of times the first thing they want to know is who's in charge around here. And I'll tell you who should be in charge. People who know how to live as servants like Jesus did. And I'll say this to you about your elders. Uh, that's the kind of men you have in charge around here. A few weeks ago, those of you who are at Celebrate Jesus may have known, you may have somewhat panicked, I may have a little bit myself, uh, to find out that someone had thrown up in uh, the, the girls' bathroom. We didn't know who, but uh, uh, don't, don't squirm. We don't know if it's you. Um, but uh, uh, someone had, and uh, you know, there's a, a need to get that cleaned up. And as we were there, everybody was still gathered over in the activity center. That's where, where it was in the activity center. Um, and uh, before long, there comes Brother Terry out with gloves on because he's in there cleaning up the vomit that's in the bathroom. That's the role of elders. <laughs> that's not what people sign up for, really. That's not what people expect when, uh, when they say this, that's people who are in charge. Right? But that's the kind of men you have in charge around here. Uh, and that's the kind of things that we learn from Jesus. Take up the basin and towel or the gloves and the trash bags and serve. So I want to leave you with one of my favorite little poems. I encourage you to, to memorize it yourself. It's very easy. George, brilliant, brilliant George MacDonald said this about Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to cover... Uh, uh, the rest of this, uh, the end of this passage, especially next week. You know, we, we have the idea here that, that Jesus is teaching very clearly before us. So we'll get further next week. So here's, here's, the, here's the poem about Jesus. The man who was Lord of fate, born in an ox's stall, was great because he was much too great to care about greatness at all. Can I say that to you one more time? I'm going to close. The man who was Lord of fate, born in an ox's stall, was great because he was much too great to care about greatness at all. The Lord bless that to be us as well.